Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Yo tengo casi 33 años de ser, de ser forense. Nunca había visto una, una escena así. In spring 2021, reporter Brian Avelar launched an investigation that began in the depths of a grave dug by a serial killer and ended with the government forcing him and other journalists to flee El Salvador. Sonoro and Revista Factum present Humo, Murder and Silence in El Salvador. The story behind a country where the truth and its citizens' rights are buried under the weight of power. Señor Ministro. ¿Dónde está Karen y Eduardo Guerrero? ¿Dónde están mis hijos? Listen to Humo, Murder and Silence in El Salvador, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Human Monsters Premium. In the 80s, the comedy movie Parenthood stuck in my mind. One of the actors playing a lost teenager tells his girlfriend's mother about the abuse he suffered at home and ends his tale with the statement that you need a license to catch a fish, to drive a car, to own a television, and even to own a dog, but any asshole can be a father. It takes a considerable amount of unselfish work, love, and sacrifice to raise a happy, healthy, and well-adjusted child, and I consider it the hardest job in the world. Unfortunately for many babies, the stork dropped them down the chimney of a house that is full of neglect, abuse, and hardship. Examples of extreme abuse and depravity are plentiful enough to warrant concern, but these children become adults and without therapy and guidance, what happens with the sadness, the rage, and the confusion inevitably generated by sexual and physical abuse and neglect? When I first watched the YouTube clip about Beth Thomas, even a hardened true crime consumer like myself found a chilly ice finger run down my spine as the six-year-old little girl spoke. Looking at her with the sound turned off, you see a big-eyed little girl with a rosy blush on her cheek, and you can almost imagine smelling bubblegum on her breath and sunshine and strawberries in her hair. But when she opens her mouth and, with an almost disinterested tone, recounts her deeds, 
any listener's soul would want to instinctively take a step back. With a shy smile, she tells the psychiatrist in an almost bored manner how she sticks pins into her brother and her animals. She openly admits sneaking up to his room to punch him in his stomach while he is sleeping. Killing little birds came as natural to her as opening a can of soda. Without any emotions, she admits that she wanted to kill her adopted parents and her brother. In a sweet voice, she confesses that she has uncontrollable urges to masturbate and that killing comes naturally to her. Her parents were forced to lock her in her room to keep anyone in the household safe from her. If you look for the video online, you will probably find it under the link Evil Little Girl or Psycho Little Girl. But she was not born that way. A minister and his wife adopted the little girl and her brother when she was 19 months old and her brother 7 months old. Ben's mother died from kidney failure a month before her adoption. The condition in which the children were found was deplorable. John had been picked up so little that his head had flattened at the back. Social workers discovered him in his crib covered in feces and urine with a curdled bottle of milk at the foot of his cot. He had been picked up so few times that he struggled to lift his head. Beth's condition was not much better, and it would later be established that her father had sexually abused her. The couple wanted to share their love and leave a legacy behind, but they were completely unprepared for the emotionless six-year-old who frequently hid knives and would bash her brother's head against the concrete until someone stopped her. The couple had the foresight to get her help, but the question remained if the abuse she received at such a young age had caused irreparable damage to her psyche. After going through all the research for the case of David Maust, I had to wonder if intervention had occurred early enough in his life would things have turned around and would five boys never have lost their lives? Many a fragile mind had been fractured at infancy by parents who showed little or no love for their children. This was the case with David Edward Maust. He was born on the 5th of April, 1954, in Connellsville, Pennsylvania, and despite his surname having a distinct Amish ring to it, the family was anything but faithful. Parents Eva and George themselves had tragic childhoods. George was orphaned when he was 12 years old, and in some of the foster homes he was placed in, he was sexually and physically abused. Eva grew up on a farm, and her childhood is described as depraved and miserable. Her mother treated her like a slave, and her father beat her with boards and chains. While in Pennsylvania, Eva would be institutionalized in a psychiatric hospital and would be diagnosed as being psychotic. David was the second out of four siblings, and it has been speculated that forceps being used during his birth might have caused some of his later disturbing behavior. Eva claimed that David had thrown objects at his baby brother at the age of two and later tried to set his crib on fire. Jeremy, David's brother, later claimed in his book that David had been sexually abused by a family member 
and hinted that Eva might have been abusing her son. Her relationship with her son was odd enough that it could be believable. She hated David, and it is speculated that the reason for her despising her son was that he looked exactly like his father. In 1961, the Moust family moved to Chicago, Illinois, and shortly after this relocation, George decided to leave his wife and family. Whatever coals of loathing had been smoldering in Eva's heart towards her son had suddenly been stoked into raging flames. He was repeatedly told she did not want him. After their divorce, Eva sent David to live with his father, but that arrangement lasted no more than a day before David was posted back to his mother. In 1963, when David was nine years old, his mother had him institutionalized. She claimed the crib-burning incident and the fact that he, as a toddler, threw things at his brother were the reasons she successfully had him placed in the Dunnings State Hospital in Chicago. She added that he once killed a squirrel with a baseball bat and that he had also tried to drown his brother. His brother Jeffrey told her both the latter stories. She said she could not control him anymore. Stories about abuse and neglect in this facility were rife, and the hospital had a reputation for having parents just dropping off their children when they did not want to take care of them. One boy staff later recounted, only stayed with him during the summer months when his parents went on holiday. Eva was encouraged to visit and strengthen her bond with her child, but she was not interested. She would arrange visits and, without excuse, just not show up. David would stand for hours in front of the hospital windows, waiting for his mother, and when she failed to show up, he would make excuses for her, such as she must be sick or her back hurts. Hospital staff reported that they never saw the lying, stealing, and out-of-control behavior his mother claimed he had, and they soon realized she had just dumped him there. He was, however, definitely affected by the lack of parental interaction and was preoccupied with a fear of abandonment. He had not one bad report, but despite all their efforts, Eva would not allow David home for visits and eventually bluntly said, that she just did not want him home. When staff tried to encourage her to take David with her on a swimming trip, she refused, adding that she wished he would drown. Eva would during this time be described by a social worker as needy, psychotic, disturbed, and narcissistic. In 1967, David was sent to the children's home when he was 13, which opened him up to more psychological damage. Within days of his arrival, a boy who made sexual advances on him approached him. David rebuffed his advances, but the boy blackmailed him by threatening to tell everyone that he was in a mental institution and David was forced to kiss the boy. This event left him feeling deeply ashamed. It was during his time at the children's home that David confessed he choked two of the other boys in the home. Both boys survived, but it was clear that the rage and David's own hatred had caught fire. The boy whose mother did not want him was left angry and confused by his own actions. 
He was sent back to the state hospital in 1970, but soon after his return, he ran away, never to return. Eva still wanted nothing to do with her son, and she sent him to work for his uncle in Ritzville, Georgia. His uncle owned a construction company, and David was reportedly very good at his job, but he was fired after crashing a company truck. In 1971, he tried to return to his family home, but Eva was so determined to not have anything to do with her son that she threatened him to get out of her house with a knife. She later apologized, and realizing David had no other options, she took him to an army recruiter. At the age of 18 years old, David was enlisted in the army. David started basic training in St. Louis and would eventually be a cook in Frankfurt, Germany, where he picked up the hobby of bowling. He was excellent at his recreation and even won trophies and prizes. By all accounts, he was an able serviceman with no issues. While stationed in Frankfurt in 1974, David met a boy named Jimmy McCluster at a bowling alley. Jimmy's parents were also stationed in Germany, and by now David had begun befriending teenagers instead of people his own age. The two had struck up a friendship, but this would not last. From what we can gather, Jimmy started to threaten David that he would tell everyone they knew that David was gay and that Jimmy caught him masturbating. David also told of a time he woke up naked with Jimmy on top of him, also naked, and claims that he did not recall anything before that. Once again, David was filled with first shame and then rage. A month after the incident, David and Jimmy stole a couple of mopeds and drove around in the forest. Somewhere during this scenic trip, David forced Jimmy deep into the forest on foot by threatening him with a knife. He tied the boy to a tree and beat him with his fists and a board from which nails protruded. After the assault, David untied the dying boy and would later tell psychiatrists that Jimmy died after he had taken 10 feet of steps deeper into the woods. He also claimed that he had decided seven months before that he was going to kill Jimmy. David was quickly arrested and charged with larceny and manslaughter. According to his lawyer, David claimed that Jimmy had died in an accident he had with a stolen moped he was driving, and despite the physical evidence pointing at nothing less than first-degree murder, David was sentenced to only four years in prison, which he did in Fort Leavenworth Prison. After serving three years, David was paroled, despite his numerous pleas to let him stay incarcerated. In his diary, he would say that he was scared to go back to the real world, and when he was behind bars, he could not hurt anyone. The powers, however, disagreed with David, and he was set free on the 10th of May, 1977. He went back to Chicago and took up employment as a machinist. Eight months into his employment, he stabbed a fellow employee by almost gutting him with a six-inch knife. The victim survived, and David would stand trial for this attack in 1980. What baffled everyone was the absolute lack of motive, and unfortunately, not much further is known about the attack.
In August 1981, the urge to kill again overtook David. He set out to kill the boy who had sexually assaulted him in the children's home. But after finding out the boy, who was now a man, was in prison, he decided to look for another victim. David spotted 15-year-old Donald Jones walking down the street and decided he would be the perfect scapegoat for all the transgressions life had dealt him. He turned on his charm and lured Donald into his car. He drove Donald to a quarry, and as his victim stuttered and begged clemency for whatever transgression had caused this attack, David first stabbed the boy and then proceeded to drown him. After killing Donald, David fled Texas. In December 1981, David came across Richard Sweet and Stephen Anderson as the two were walking home after a trip to the 7-Eleven in Galveston. He stopped next to the two boys in his two-tone Chevy Blazer and asked the teenagers if they were interested in making some money. Being broke teenagers, both were interested, but Richard felt a hint of hesitation when David said he only needed one of them to help him. Stephen, however, got into the car and told David he needed to call his mother. David offered to take him to his hotel room where he could call her. Once Stephen entered the hotel room, David punched him in the back of his head. He threw Stephen on the bed and, while repeatedly punching him, told him that if he screamed, he would kill him. Stephen blacked out from the attack and said the last thing he remembered was that David was removing his pants. After the attack, David drove Stephen to a park and tried to give him money to keep quiet, but Stephen's injuries were so severe that he would be hospitalized for a week, and the police were notified. His arms showed clear marks of being bound, and apart from the numerous bruises, he had also been stabbed. Stephen asked his mother if he was raped, and she said the examination showed no, but Stephen believed his mother was lying to him to protect him. David would be found guilty of kidnapping and assault and would be sentenced to five years in prison. He felt an incredible sense of remorse for the crime, going as far as to try to commit suicide several times and slashing his face in repentance. In 1983, David was extradited from Texas to Illinois, where he would stand trial for the murder of Donald Jones. He openly confessed to the murder in front of the Cook County Sheriff's officers, but refused to sign a statement. One of the investigators wrote on one of the pages in his file, Bad guy. Gacy type. He was initially found not fit to stand trial and underwent many interviews with mental health care experts. They confirm what any true crime addict already knows, which is that David's childhood had a direct link to his crimes. For the next 10 years, David would spend his time in the Cook County prison system, as doctors and psychiatrists could not agree on whether David was fit enough to stand trial. He would frequently write in his diary that prison was the best place for him to be, and that he did not want to be released. After the ten years of back and forth to court, 
David pled guilty to the murder of Donald Jones, and he was sentenced to 35 years in prison. He received 12 years off for time served and for good behavior. He would effectively only serve seven years in prison before he was released. His release came after the Cook County Sheriff's Office sent a fax to the prison stating that David is most likely the most dangerous prisoner they have ever housed, despite his impeccable record during incarceration. Once again, David pleaded with the Illinois Parole Board not to release him and instead send him to the Sheridan State Institution to spend the rest of his life. The letter went unanswered. He was released on the 25th of June, 1999, with no place to go. David was spent almost a year living in homeless shelters, and essentially being homeless, before he moved to the suburb of Oakland. There he made friends with a man named Anthony Mazur. He sold Anthony pipe dreams of starting a weed-growing operation, claiming to have land and money to fund the project. After a while, Anthony realized that nothing was going to become of the plans, but when he told David he was going to go to Wisconsin to start a life there, David started beating him with a pipe. The attack only ended when Anthony shouted for him to stop, and David appeared instantly apologetic. The injuries Anthony sustained caused him to receive 28 stitches and 48 staples. Originally, Anthony did not want to press charges, but by the time he decided he did, too much time had passed to make a good enough case. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.